Father, we uh, pray that our worship this morning was pleasing to you, that it was a, a joy for your ears, it was a sweet aroma to your nose, God, that we are, our hearts are right before you. We thank you for the abilities and the gifts that you've given us that we can use to praise you. We thank you for worship and song and music. God, we pray now that, uh, as, as was sung, that we love you only because you first loved us, that you sent your Son to die in our place on the cross, to come and to seek and to save us who were lost in a moment in time. God, we love you for that, and we thank you, we praise you. Lord, I pray that our hearts would now and our, our hearts would be right, that we would give you this time, that we would hear your voice through your word and apply the truths in whatever way that is that we need to individually apply them in our lives immediately after we hear them. And we just commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Stories told of a uh, teenager who had just gotten his driving permit. He asked his father, who was a pastor, if they could discuss the use of the family car. His father took him to his study and he said this to him, I'll make you a deal, son. You bring up your grades, you study your Bible a little more, and you get your hair cut, and we'll talk about it. About a month went by, the boy came back to his dad and asked if they could discuss once again the use of the car. His father took him into a study and he said, son, you know what, I'm proud of you. I noticed that uh, your grades have improved. I noticed that every day you are studying your Bible and doing your devotions diligently. He says, but there's one thing that I'm troubled by, and that's the fact that you still haven't got your hair cut. You know, the young man thought about it for a moment, waited, and he said, You know what, Dad? In that time when I was studying my Bible, I happened to notice that Samson had long hair, Moses had long hair, and I believe Jesus had long hair. To which his father replied, said, Well, you know what? That's all true. And you probably also noticed in your studies that they walked everywhere they went. You know, and as I thought about that story, it reminded me that in our study through the Gospel of Luke, we've come to a turning point in Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And if you recall from our last message, Jesus has resolutely set his face on going to Jerusalem, and it is as he and his disciples walk to Jerusalem and to his historic and also eternal date with the cross that the events that we're about to read took place. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. In verses 1 through 24, in our passage today, we're going to learn what it means to be ambassadors of the king. In Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, we read these words. It says, Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two and two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. And whatever house that you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him, but if not, it will return to you. And stay in that house, eating and drinking that, that, that which they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. 
And whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city that you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. And the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou, thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. You know, in verse 1, we're told that after Jesus' instructions on, as to what is required of those who would follow him, if you'll recall from our last message, we're told that there would be hardships that we would have to endure. And that these hardships actually would be a benefit to us because they would give us a sense of urgency and also a sense of focus. Because it's through those times that we find ourselves in difficulty that we find that, you know, truly there are only few things in life that really matter. It's through the hardships of life that we recognize that there's a sense of urgency that we should have as ambassadors of God to be able to deliver a message to people around us as to what the truly important things are in life. And one of the things that you've learned and I'm learning as we go through life is that when difficulties come, we begin to realize that, you know what, that so many of the things that we think are so important in life just really don't mean much. Not long ago, in fact, a week ago, I went to visit a gal who had come to see me in the hospital and she was having uh, surgery for breast cancer. And we sat and I sat next to her bed. No one else was around. And she said, you know what, are you, are you learning some things through this experience that you're going through? I said, you know, I'm learning a lot. I'm not sure I've learned everything yet, but I'm learning more and more every day. I said, what kind of things are you learning? And she said, you know, it's just amazing to me that there were so many things that really bothered me about my husband that I found that just really aren't that important anymore. And it's just a waste of time to be arguing and bickering and and debating over things that really don't matter. And the only thing that, you know, at the end of the day, we, we do these things because it's so important for us to be right. You know, it's just that pride of, you know, i got to be right in this argument. Why? I mean, really, why? What difference does it matter? At the end of the day, who cares? 
You know, what, what's important in life? And when you're laying in a hospital bed like that and you're recognizing the fact that, you know what, that, that maybe your days are numbered and you realize that, you know what, all our days are numbered, but sometimes we're more aware of them at other times and we begin to recognize that, you know what, what's really important in life? And there's nothing more important than our relationship with our Creator through Christ who has saved us from our sin. Because you could have a whole bunch of people, and I thought about it, you know, I had a, my wife and my son and, you know, the doctors and everybody's, you know, they're all standing there and they're talking to you as they're wheeling into the operating room. But at the end of the day, if the Lord calls you home, we're not going as a group, you know? It, it's kind of like, hey, you coming with me? <laughs> is anyone coming with me? Oh, <laughs> is, is anyone coming with me? You know, and it's kind of like, you know, no, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a trip that we all make individually. And so we recognize as we go through this that he said, you know, these hardships in our life give us a sense of urgency and focus that what really is important in life? Nothing besides coming to an awareness of who our creator is and coming to faith in Christ who loved us and died upon the cross for us so that we who would trust in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Because when everything else is stripped away, that's all that really matters. See, and, and Jesus, as he sent out these other 70, we're told that after these instructions, he appointed 70 others and he sent them out two, two ahead of him to every city that he was going to go to. And, you know, it, it's fascinating. There's some thought that, you know, why did Jesus choose 70? Well, we know that there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin, but we also know that when you read through Genesis chapter 10, that there are 70 nations that God had acknowledged in Genesis 10. And it's an understanding or a thought that in Luke's gospel, he is trying to get across to all of us the universal appeal of the love of God to the world. And Jesus sent 70 out, representing the 70 nations. And we realize later that before his ascension, he said that, you know what, you'll be my witnesses in, in, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts of the world, that for God so loved the world, the entire world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. And, and, and it's very clear that, you know, God's love for the world that is represented in these 70 men who go out two at a time and they go into the places where Jesus would be going to prepare the way for him who would arrive after them. And so he's emphasized this universal appeal of God's love and the invitation to trust in Christ, God's chosen Savior to the world. And as we go through this, the reason I've entitled the message Ambassadors of the King is that these men were sent with the commission to represent the Lord Jesus Christ, who we know from Scripture as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they were truly ambassadors because the word ambassador means to be sent by another and also to be sent by another to go before him to prepare a people to receive his coming. The Apostle Paul would later elaborate on this concept. If you've got your Bible in front of you, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He would elaborate on the idea that all of God's people, those who have come to faith in Christ, have received Christ as Savior. To them he's given us the privilege to be called children of God. To those who believe in his name that we are his ambassadors to go into the world to proclaim the message that he has entrusted to us about his love for mankind. In 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 14, Paul elaborates on this theme where he says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he, speaking of Jesus, died for all that we 
who should live, that we should live no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, all things become new. I love the song that was sung, that in a moment of time, our past was forgiven. All things have passed away, and all things have become new. If you have turned from sin and you've turned to God and you've, you've entreated upon Him or you've pled with Him for forgiveness and you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and you believe in His resurrection and you've received Him personally as Savior from your own sins, the Bible says that at that moment in time, all of our sins are removed, past, present, and even future. That He came in a moment of time to take away our sins. And that all things have passed away and all things have become new. I remember the story of a man who went to his pastor and he said, Pastor, you know, I'm really troubled by this, this thing that I did in my life and I'm having a hard time letting it go. And he asked him a very simple question and maybe you can relate to it. You're troubled by something in the past. And it continues to haunt you day by day. And it's like, I can't believe that I did that. I can't believe I hurt that person. I can't believe I did that act. I can't believe I committed such a sin. And, and you're tormented by it every day of your life. And he said, have you asked God to forgive you? And he said, you know what, Pastor? I have asked God to forgive me about a thousand times for it. And he said, you know, you know sir, that's about 999 times too many. Because when we ask Him to forgive us, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said, if you want to do something a thousand times, praise Him a thousand times that He has forgiven your sins. And as far as the east is from the west, that's how far He has removed that transgression. That those sins are gone for all of eternity. They're wiped clean. The slate is wiped clean and pure. And God says we need to understand and recognize that. If we are in Christ, old things have passed away and all things have become new. He says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us to us, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we, you and I who have trusted in Christ, are His ambassadors, as though God were entreating through us. And we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I want you to notice that he's saying that you and I who have trusted in Christ, he has, he has made us his ambassadors. He has sent us out into the world with a purpose and a mission. And the mission is that we would share with the world the word of reconciliation. And what is the word of re reconciliation? Very simple, the very word of God. The word of God to warn people of the consequences of sin to make them understand and recognize that all of us are guilty and all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us are righteous. To use the standard of God to help them understand that every one of us is guilty before God. We've all violated His standard. 
And we're to go into the world and warn people that because we violated God's standard, there is a price that has to be paid for sin. We live in a world that wants to throw the word sin out, but the word sin is central to the theme of the gospel. For if you don't understand and recognize that, you know what, that you have sinned and fall short of God's standard, that you are not righteous in any way, that I fall short, that, you know what, on my best day, that I'll never be able to save myself. Until we recognize our need for a Savior, Savior from what? A Savior from the consequences of our sin nature and the actions that are evidence that we are sinners. Until we recognize we need a Savior, we're not going to turn to Him. But the wonderful thing is that He has given us a Savior in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you would turn from that sin and you would ask God to forgive you, He will forgive you and cleanse you from unrighteousness. And those old things would pass away and He'll give you a new nature, one that is now excited and alive to God and has died to sin instead of the other way around. And you and I who have experienced this new birth, being born again by the will of God, not by our own human efforts, you and I who are ambassadors now are, are entrusted with this word of reconciliation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we are to entreat, to beg people to be reconciled to God. And it's a command. We're to beg people, be reconciled to God. Turn from sin and turn to God and trust in Christ for your forgiveness before it is too late for you to beg them. When was the last time you had a real passion in your heart and a sense of urgency to beg someone who does not know Christ as their Savior to turn to God for the forgiveness of sin? When was the last time we had that type of sense of urgency or focus? So many of us have been deceived into just living our lives and just be so grateful that we have come to faith in Christ and that our future is secure. And we know when we're absent from the body, we'll be present from the Lord. And we have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And we've become so comfortable in that that the world around us literally is going to hell and we don't really have a sense of urgency for them. See, and that's what he was telling them, to go into the world and and to beg people, to entreat upon them, to consider the claims of Christ and to turn from sin and to trust in him. So if we go back to Luke, we're going to see what's involved since we all are ambassadors of Christ. Those who have trusted in him are children of God who believed in his name, who've received him as Savior. We're to go into the world as ambassadors. And there are several things that we're going to look at. First of all, I want you to notice the requirements of those who become his ambassadors are laid out for us in verses 1 through 4. It says that after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two and two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to go. And what jumped out at me is the sense of dedication to the mission that God has for us. To have a sense of dedication and determination that, you know what, that's what God has called us to do. You know, so many people are running around in life trying to figure out what's your purpose. I mean, you know, there's a book that's out, The Purpose Driven Life, and everybody's reading it, every church is doing it, every group is doing it. But what's fascinating to me is that, you know, it's not hard to understand our purpose, Our purpose is very simple. Our purpose is to be ambassadors for the king, to represent him in such a manner that those who would see our life would be attracted to know who our Savior is. Our greatest purpose is to go into the world and to make disciples as we go. 
you know, to teach them about the things of God, observe all the things that He has taught us, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, our purpose first and foremost is to be dedicated, wholly dedicated to Him, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So then when He says to you, go, you go. When He says to you, you know, do this, you do that. Whatever it is that He places on your heart, there should be such a dedication and love for Him because He first loved us. He died for us. He gave us His best. Therefore, we glorify God in these bodies. And you say, Lord, what is it you want me to do? And He says, Chuck, here's what I want you to do. That's all I need to hear. I'm going to go do it. He said to them, go. I want you to go into every city that I'm going to go to. Go ahead of me and prepare the way for me. You have a ministry of reconciliation. Beg and entreat upon people to turn to God and to turn from their sin. To trust in Christ as their Savior. And you know what? And, and, and I'll forgive them. That's the great news of the gospel. The gospel means good news. Literally, the good news is that, you know what? God, God has a remedy for the bad news. And so when we look at this, you know, where to go. We shouldn't let our hardships, we shouldn't let anything hinder us, we shouldn't let anything impede our willingness. We have a sense of urgency and focus that nothing is more important than doing the will of the king and proclaiming to everyone everywhere the kingdom of God is at hand. That people in our life, you and I have the, 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 the wonderful assignment of letting people know that they can know God their creator. That God wants to them to know Him. That God loves them. That God sent His Son to die for them. That God provided a remedy for sin. That we can, we can look at the claims of Christ. He claimed to be God in human flesh. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again from the dead. The existence of the Christian church is a mighty testimony of the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There were 500 witnesses who saw Him afterwards. And He continued to proclaim the kingdom of God. God is near. And he's available to all who seek him. He's not running and hiding from anyone. He's not hiding in the recesses and the craters of Mars. The heavens declare the handiwork of God. We don't need to send rovers and things all over the place trying to figure out where we came from because if we would just go around and tell people, we'd save everybody a whole bunch of time and money. But that's our assignment. That's our purpose. So that they can know Him by repenting and turning from sin and responding by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's a dignified calling to be an ambassador of the King. And you'd think that there'd be a long line of people who would want to be ambassadors of the King. But the reality of it is, is that, you know what, there isn't a long line because look in verse 2, it's a difficult assignment. Why are people in a hurry to be willing to do what God wants them to do? And the reality I found in my own life, and maybe you can identify, is this. Because oftentimes God asks me things to do that, you know what, frankly, I'd rather not do. Because I got other plans. I got other desires. I got other purpose. I got, you know, other reasons to live. And he's requiring a sacrifice. You know, he wants me to pick up that cross daily and follow him. And he says, check, this is what I want you to do. And I go, no, I don't really think so. I think you want somebody else to do that. But I'm willing to do anything for you, Lord. I mean, we all pray, Lord, use me. I'm willing to do anything. Well, here's what I'd like you to do. Well, I'd rather not do that. You know, it's like having a kid in your household that says, you know, hey, Dad, what can I do to help you? Well, hey, you can go out and wash the car. Well, I was thinking of something else. Well, what were you thinking? Well, I was thinking maybe I could sit in your chair, hold your channel changer, and turn the channels for you. You know, something like that's really, you know, trying and, and, and difficult. 
This guy, no, he says, look, he goes, you know, he was saying to them in verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Why? Because we're not willing to leave our comfort zone. Why? Because he's already warned us that, you know, he said, come and follow me. He goes, oh, you know what, I will, but I got some things to do first. Let me go and bury my father, who's, you know, in in, in the epitome of health and probably won't die for many years. But after that, then I'll come and follow you. Oh, or let me, you know, here, I'll go plow the field. Oh, but you know what? But I think I'm missing something. And we go back to whatever it is that is our comfort zone. And, and the reason that the laborers are few is because so many of us have bought into the lie that God wants us to live these comfortable, cushy Christian lives because we hear so much of that. And the reason we hear so much of it is because there's an audience out there that wants to hear that. No one wants to hear how difficult it is to follow Jesus. No one wants to hear about picking up your cross, denying yourself daily and following him. Everybody wants to hear about what's in it for me. You know, I'll follow Jesus if he leads me on this just a nice rosy path. And I've struggled with this. I Lord, you know what? I, I want to be available to you. I, I want to be an effective communicator of your word. And he goes, well, Chuck, then you know what? The only way we're going to accomplish this is I'm going to have to give you cancer. I'm like, well, let me rethink what I want to do for you. Because it's through that that I'm learning more than I've ever learned before. And the depth of my understanding of things that I thought I knew has just grown exponentially. But it was only through that. And I was like, well, I, I, but I want to be an effective communicator of your truth. Well, you'll never be an effective communicator of my truth until I break you. Because God can never use a man greatly till he crushes him deeply. And that's, and that's his plan for all of us. And so I go, well, you know, I got to be more careful about what I'm willing to do. But then I recognize that, you know, it really isn't an option. You know, he says, you know, it's a difficult assignment. And I want you to notice he says that, but the laborers are few, therefore beseech or pray to God that he would send out more laborers in the harvest. And I like that because you know what he's telling you to do? You and I who are serving him, We look around and say, man, Lord, there is so much work to do. There are so many people to reach. There are so many people who have have come to faith in Christ to build up now in their faith. There is so much to do. You know, we can't do this individually. We can't do it with a small... We need more laborers to do the work that needs to be done. And he said that it's the laborers who are to pray for more laborers not the spectators who should be praying for more laborers. I get so weary of people that are always praying, God, raise up people to meet this need when they're not doing anything. And I always tell people, say, you know what, and, and, and many of you have suggestions, and I always say, you know what, man, I mean, if you see that and you have a burden for that, that's because God has opened your eyes to see something that I can't see. But if that's a need that you see, then you know what? You're probably the person that God wants to use to go out and meet that need. And we'll do everything that we can to support you, to encourage you, to make that need known so that if there are other people that God has impressed upon them that that's a need that needs to be met, that he'd raise them up to do the same thing. But as laborers, we pray for more laborers to labor alongside of us, not in place or instead of us. 
And if you're not laboring for God's kingdom, then I'm going to ask you to get off the bench, get into the game, and, and, and be motivated by the conviction of the Spirit of God in your heart who's saying, you know what, this is a need. If you see that need, then stand up and say, here I am, Lord, use me to meet that need, and we'll do everything that we can to encourage that that need is met. But he's saying that it's difficult to follow Jesus. It's difficult to be an ambassador because there is so much to do and so little people who are willing to pay the price. I pray that we become people who are willing to pay whatever price it is that God wants us to pay in order to reach people for the kingdom of God. As ambassadors, we must be dedicated to the king's service. You know, understanding that not only is a difficult task requiring many labors, but and if that hasn't thinned out the ranks yet, notice what he also says, that it's a dangerous task. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Well, that's a warm, fuzzy thought. That's like, you know, go ahead. I'm sending you out in the wolves, man. They're going to tear you apart. You're a lamb in the midst of wolves. But you know what? Don't worry about it because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We got to recognize and understand that that's the world that we live in. They were sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. We need to be very real about this assignment. And that is this. Any man or woman who takes Jesus Christ seriously and makes himself or herself available for him to do whatever it is he calls you to do, you will become the target of the devil. Show of hands. How many of you, God led you to do something? You felt motivated by God within? You know, God, this is a need. God, oh, you know what? Stand up, meet the need. And you said, here I am, Lord. Use me. Here I am, Lord. Send me. And he goes, okay, I'm going to. And as soon as you do, all hell breaks loose in your life. That's the way it is. Look around. Don't be surprised by that. You know, look for it. Because if you are not being attacked for being used by the Lord, you're not doing anything for Him. See, my Christian life has just been so wonderful. Because you ain't doing anything. Because as soon as you, you step up and say, here I am, Lord, use me, and the first obstacle comes along the way, or first attack from the enemy, you say, oh, that must not be God's will. I'll flip that channel on, it tells me that. It's like, come on. You've got to understand that, you know what, we're sent out as lambs into the midst of wolves. That's the world we live in. Why do you think there's so much objection when the name of Jesus is mentioned anytime, publicly, anywhere? Because Jesus is exclusive. Because there's no other name under heaven given to man by which men can be saved. He's the only way. He's the truth. He's the life. You can't get to the Father. But through him, nobody wants to hear about Jesus. But where's ambassadors? So everywhere we go, we're going to tell people about Jesus. And if no one wants to hear about Jesus, or very few people want to hear about Jesus, then we can expect probably some opposition when we bring his name up. But that's all right. If we know it's going to happen ahead of time, it won't stop us from doing it. The reason that we stop is we, use, we say his name, we run into objections or obstacles, and we go, oh, we probably shouldn't say that. So then we stop, and the obstacles and objections go away, and so does all the heat of the enemy. It is an exciting place to be being shot at all the time. It's great because you know what? You can't get hit unless God allows it. So what's the big deal? I mean, think about it. 
you can't get hit unless God allows it. And if he allows it, he's doing it for his purpose and the glory. So even getting hit goes, goes to his glory and accomplishes the purposes that we're out there to accomplish. So we, we can't lose. You know, as we go through, I'm just amazed at how many folks, you know, refuse to understand this truth. You know, in fact, these folks would have us believe that all the difficulties are a result of unconfessed sin or lack of faith in one's life. Yet Jesus clearly teaches and tells us our assignment is filled with danger, which should lead us to a, a, a desperate dependency upon him. In verse 4, he says, carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. He's saying, you know what? Just don't take anything with you. Just go and I'll, I'll meet every one of your needs. You know, I was thinking about this passage this week and I was thinking about this desperate dependency that turns, this desperation that turns us to dependency upon the Lord. And I was reading once again about how God led Israel out of, the, out of Egypt. And um, if you've got your Bible there, turn to um, Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus 14, we find this passage that refers to what looks like at first glance that God leads, leads the Israelites out of Egypt and into what they looked at as a dead end. And they were wondering, God, what are you doing? I mean, you took us out of Egypt. You brought us out here. You led us to this dead end. What are you up to? What are you doing? And in Exodus 14, or verse 4, we read the word. It says, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his armies. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this that we've done? That we have let Israel go from serving us? They were like, what are we, crazy? We had all these laborers here for, you know, working for free. Said, so he made his chariot ready and he took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook him and by camping by the sea. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked on him. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've given, taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, that wasn't true at all. They moaned and groaned all the time about serving the Egyptians. They couldn't wait to get out of there. They were sick of leeks and onions. They were tired of being their slaves. They said, God, free us. And God answered their prayer and led them out of Egypt. And now when they ran into the first roadblock, they blamed whoever they could. They said to Moses, Hey, this is all your fault. Look at this, man. This army is following us. We're stuck here at, at, at a dead end. There's a sea in front of us, an army behind us. There's mountains to each side. We're dead ducks. And it's all your fault. We liked being slaves in Egypt <laughs> compared to this. I was like, that wasn't true. But Moses said to the people, Why, well, you know, don't be afraid. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. 
And as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved out and went behind them and a pillar of cloud moved from them uh, before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel and all there was a cloud along the darkness yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. You know, as I read through this, he asked the question, why did God lead Israel into what looked like a dead end? And the answer was, so that he would get all the glory and praise, so that they would know that he is the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And and he said, well, why does God lead you and me into what looks like a dead end? You know, because in life we're going to encounter those. There are going to be times in life where we're going to be put into what looks like a dead end. There is no pastor that's going to be able to give you any counsel as to why God has you where he has you. There's no doctor that can give you an answer for where you are, and I can relate to that. You're just going to be in a position where you go, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? And there will be such a desperation in your life that it will drive you to total dependency on Him. And there's no better place to be. There's no better place to be than when you realize this is so much bigger than me or us. We have to turn to God. What are you going to do? And then when He acts, guess what? He gets all the praise and the glory. No man could take credit for parting the Red Sea. In all of human history, we have that as an account of the faithfulness of God. The Egyptians knew that the God of Israel was the God of all creation. They recognized and they honored him and and it brought glory to his name. Why? Because it was so much bigger than any human being that it had to be God's hand who was in it. God wants to drive us to a, a point of desperation in our life so that we will turn to no one else but Him for our dependency. We have got to be dependent upon the Lord and Him alone. I don't know if you're there right now, but you know what? Praise God for that. Because we all meet that point in our life where we are so desperate. I talked to a young gal the other day. I was waiting to get, to get uh, do a blood test. And uh, they called my name and she said, and the gal said when I came back, oh, you know, is Dana your daughter? And yeah, and we got in this conversation. And, and you know, and she started to share more things that I really needed to know uh, about, you know, she was there because she has to go every other day to give blood because they're trying to have a baby. And, you know, and she got into all the medical reasons why that wasn't happening. And, and I just, you know, said, look, you know what? You, you just need to turn to God. You need to trust in him. You need to pray. Because it's the right thing to follow medical advice, and it's not not bad to do any of that. But at the end of the day, you know what? God wants us at a point where we're so desperate that we depend upon Him. And when He answers that prayer, we give Him all the praise and all the glory because we know it came from His hand, from His goodness and His faithfulness. 
See, a casual glance through Scripture affirms this truth. The desperation of Moses, as we see, the desperation of Joseph in prison, the desperation of Daniel in the lion's den, the desperation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the desperation of all of the prophets, the desperation of David as Saul was chasing him, the desperation of the apostles as they were being ridiculed and persecuted and beaten for the name of Jesus Christ, the desperation of all of these people help us to understand when they finally gave up, they became totally dependent upon the Lord and then he was able to work in such a way that he got all the glory and he said you know what don't be afraid don't be afraid if God has you in that desperate place don't be afraid because there's never panic in heaven only plans God has a purpose God has a reason We never have to be afraid that somehow God has forsaken us or he's overlooked us or he's not involved in the struggle that we're going through. No, no, God has a plan. And there's never panic in heaven. There's only plans. And the Bible says that I know what plans I have for you, not of calamity, not of hardship, not of heartache, but I've got plans for you and I'm going to use you to bring glory to my name. You're my ambassador, and you're going into the world to prepare the world for my arrival. See, he told them to see the salvation, their salvation, and to go into peace and to move forward. And so there's a time where we go, okay, Lord, I'm totally dependent upon you, and now we'll move forward. And that's what he wants us to do. One last thought before we go back to Luke, and that is this. it, It just was compelled upon me, this one truth, and that is this. We will never learn God is all we need until he is all we have. It's impossible any other way. We will never learn that God is all we need until he is all we have. Are you trusting in him? If we go back to Luke chapter 10, we notice that there's a a response that we should anticipate as ambassadors Two of them, basically. One is one of hospitality or a warm reception. He says, you go into this house and say peace to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Staying in that house, eating and drinking that, you, that which you give you, he gives you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't keep moving from house to house. In whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal those in it who are sick. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And the reality is this, as ambassadors, when we go into the world with the message of, of God's love in Christ, we're going to run into two responses. One is there's going to be a hospitable response. People are going to go, oh, I want to hear more about what you have to say. And when those people receive you, then you go and spend time with them. And when they've come to faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says that we are to build them up. Don't be jumping from person to person and place to place. We're to build those people up in the faith. We're to teach them the things of God. We're to instruct them. As Jesus said, we go into the world and we make disciples as we go. We're baptizing them. We're also teaching them uh, to, to you know the instructions that God has given us, what it means to become a Christian, what it means to live a Christian life, what it means to do the things that are pleasing to God, what our purpose and responsibilities are as Christians. We're, we're to lead 
lead people to Christ and when they trust in the Savior, we're to build them up. That's why we have Bible study. That's why we do what we do so that we then are prepared to go into the world and do the same thing all over again. Every one of us should be responsible, reproductive, uh, mature Christians in our faith that we know what we believe, we know why we believe it, we know how to share it with others so that when they believe it, we can also teach them and disciple them and build them up. One of the greatest things that any, any church should do is not only present the gospel, but then make sure we build up those who have come to faith in Christ. There's nothing worse than coming to know Christ as your Savior and not understanding anything beyond that. We're to go out into the world as his ambassadors and share the word of reconciliation, but we need to know and recognize what it is. That's why I would pray that every person at some time in your Christian life would be discipled by someone else, a mentoring process, an older man teaching a younger man, an older woman teaching a younger woman in the faith what it means to live a godly life. That's why we do things like Operation Timothy. That's why we have Bible studies in the variety of places that we do so that we can learn to grow and to gain the knowledge of who we are in Christ so that we are prepared prepared then that we're always ready to give an answer for the a defense for the hope that is within us i mean it's it's not rocket science that's the whole purpose of the church is that we're ambassadors who go out into the world quite simply to share god's love with those who need to know who he is when they trust in christ as their savior that we then build them up in their faith so that one day they'll be prepared to go out and do the same thing and on and on it goes that's it in a nutshell that's what we're here to do that's our purpose it's not that difficult it's just difficult because it requires a sacrifice it's difficult because you know and i know that every time you try to get to church or a bible study or anything like that it's always tough to get there I really had good intentions, but all this stuff happened today. No kidding. Because we have an enemy that doesn't want us to spend time in the Word of God. We've got an enemy that hates the Word of God. We've got an enemy that wants us to remain immature in our faith so that if he's lost us, and he has for all of eternity, at least we won't be damaging to what he's doing. He doesn't want us to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to spend time in the Word of God. That's why I guarantee you that every time you try to get involved in a Bible study, there's always going to be difficulties in getting there. But all I'd say to you is this. Don't be surprised, and guess what? And be steadfast and movable and, and overcome those difficulties and get your face in front of the Word of God so that you can grow in the knowledge of who Christ is. It's never hard to get to a restaurant. Never hard to get to a golf course. Never hard to go to the desert or the mountains for the weekend. You know, we can always seem to find a way to do the things we really want to do. The question is this, how badly do you want to grow in your faith? And that passion to grow will dictate whether you show up or not. That passion to grow will dictate whether or not you get out of bed on a Sunday and you roll out and you show up at church. That passion will dictate whether you get here before the lockout or not. God knows our hearts, you know, and it's a wonderful thing. We need to have that passion. Now, the, the other side of it is, is, you know what, get ready for this because there are going to be times where you're going to tell people God loves them. There are going to be times you're going to, you know, tell people that, look, you know what, you need to turn from your sin. And it's pretty evident that even on your best day, you know that you're not perfect. No one ever admits that. All you got to do is ask somebody, hey, are you perfect? And they'll say, no, but I'm not that bad. Well, so you're not that bad, but you're not that good, so you're going to hell. You know, and, 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 you know, and, 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 it's, and, and it's a way that can be shared that it's just true. 
I mean, it's not that you're not that bad, you're not that good, but you violated the law, and so you're going to jail. That's just reality. And there are going to be people who are going to hate us for sharing that. They don't want to hear that because they already know that it's true. But whatever city you enter and they don't receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. We need to, in a spirit of gentleness and reverence and love, be able to warn people that, you know what, if you are hostile to the messenger of God, you are hostile to God himself. If God brings someone to your life to share with you that you need to turn from sin and trust in Christ and you don't want to hear it, notice that that's a strong contrast but indicates a strong contrast. Rather than hospitality, there's a, a spirit of hostility. Rather than a joyful reception, there's a vigorous rejection. And folks, those are the only two responses to God's invitation that are found in the Word of God. God comes and He says, I've come to give you peace with God. And you have a choice of either receiving that peace offering or rejecting it that's the only two choices that there are you know and that's why jesus goes on to say in verse 13 he says woe to you corazine woe to you besadia for if the miracles had been performed in tyre and sidon which occurred in you they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes but it'll be more tolerable for tyre and sidon in the judgment than for you and also capernaum the same thing will not be exalted to heaven will you know you'll be brought down to hades and what he was saying to them is this listen we know historically it's Sodom and Tyre and Sidon were judged by God for their sin and their failure to repent from sin and to turn to God and throw themselves upon His mercy. What He was saying to them is this. These three cities, modern day cities in Jesus' time, He said, you know what? It's going to be worse for you because you did not live up to the light that God has given you. In your cities, these miracles and signs and wonders were done by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, God's Messiah, God's Savior. He raised the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He opened the ears of, the, uh, of those who can hear. He raised those who had never walked. All of these miracles were, were done in your sight. And, and if Sodom and Tyre and Sidon had saw these things, they would have repented. They would have been sitting in sackcloth and ashes. They would have said, God, forgive us for, for, for not listening to what you have to say. Have you ever wondered and struggled with people who say, well, you know what, Chuck, you, don't, you can't tell me that people who have never heard about Jesus are going to be judged and condemned by God for their sin. If they've never heard the name of Jesus, they don't know who He is, they've never been able to trust in His death on the cross and His resurrection, or are you going to tell me that those people are still going to be judged for sin and go to hell? And the answer is very simple, yes. And the reason is twofold. Number, they said, well, that's not right. So there's two things I know about the Bible. Number one is this, that God is righteous. That God is always right. And whatever He chooses to do, because in Him there is no darkness at all. And the second thing is, we know there's no other name or authority given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but through me. Those are two very solid biblical truths. God is righteous, and Jesus Christ is the only way that man can be reconciled to God. You say, well, Chuck, explain to me then how those who never hear about Jesus could ever be saved from the consequences of their sin. 
I said, well, you know what? It's very simple. That God has given every human being, number one, an awareness of who he is through his creation. The heavens declare the handiwork of God. And also through our conscience. We know things are right and we know things are wrong. Not because it was taught to us, though it may have been reinforced in teaching, but because our conscience tells us that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. Romans 1 and 2 tells us that. A person says, well, I don't believe in God. Well, then you know what? Then why don't you explain to me how you know some things are right and how some things are wrong? Well, what do you mean? You can go all over the world. I don't care what civilization you go to. You know what? Men know in their hearts there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. Why? Because we're created in the image and likeness of God. Though distorted by sin, we still have an awareness and understanding there are some things that are right and wrong. You say, well, okay, well, then what does God do? Well, God has given us that light to reveal himself to us. And those who respond positively to the light that God has given us God will then bring more light. Period. Say, well, how do you know that for sure? Because Scripture shouts it. Because everywhere that you look, light obeyed increases light. Saul of Tarsus lived to the light that he had. He followed the laws of God. He was a persecutor of Jesus Christ because he thought he was a blasphemer. He was trying to do the right thing before God. He was seeking God. He was living to please God. And God said, what you're doing is wrong. And what did he do? He revealed more light. The light that he saw was Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus. And when he was, when he was knocked off his horse and humbled before God, he trusted in Christ as his Savior. He was looking to please God. And God says, I know your heart and you're looking to please me, but you're not right and you're going about it in the wrong way. I will send my son to you so you can see him for who he is. And he re- received him as Lord and Savior. The Bible is very clear with that. Everywhere that you look throughout Scripture, that where light is received, more light is shed. The Ethiopian eunuch was a great example of that. He's on, his, on the way in the desert road, and he's reading the, 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 uh, the prophet Isaiah, and he didn't understand it. And God told Philip, hey, I got a mission for you, Mr. Ambassador. You are to go to this desert road and you will find a man who is there. And you will proclaim the kingdom of God to him. He will be reading the prophet Isaiah. He won't understand it. He'll ask you to explain it. And you'll be able to explain. Who is he writing of? Is he writing of himself or is he writing of the Messiah? He said, and he was able to explain Jesus to him from that passage. When that man heard who Jesus Christ is, the Savior of the world, he repented of sin. He trusted in Christ as his Savior. And he said, hey, I need to be baptized for the profession publicly of my faith. What keeps me from being baptized? Nothing but finding some water, brother. And they found some water and they went and there he was baptized. Cornelius is another man that's found in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius had a hunger to know God. I don't know where he got that hunger from. Maybe he went outside one night and he looked up in the sky and he said, you know what, there's got to be a God because all this just didn't happen randomly. Everywhere I look, there's signs of creation. Everywhere I look, there's signs of order. Everywhere I look, there's, a, there, there's an understanding in my heart that there must be a God. And you know what, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Maybe he went outside one night and said, you know what, God, if you exist, I want to know you. Reveal yourself to me. Help me understand you. I want to know who you are. And you and I both know, all know, that there is a time in your life as well, that there was a time where you were going, God, I want to know who you are. Reveal yourself to me. And guess what he did? 
He sent for Peter, and Peter came to him and explained to him that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus Christ is the only authority under which men can be saved that's been given to men. And that man trusted in Christ as a Savior, and we're told that his whole household did as well. You know what? Linda and I moved from from Pennsylvania to California 20-some, 25, 26, whatever years ago. And we both grew up in a denominational background, and we had a hunger for spiritual things, but there was one thing that that denomination never did. It never quenched that hunger and thirst that we had. We never understood and recognized that we could know our Creator. We moved 3,000 miles across the country, but we had, a, we had a hunger for spiritual things. And God honored that. And he sent people into our life who said, you know what, let me talk to you about spiritual things. Let me talk to you about church. Let me talk to you more importantly than that. Let me talk to you about Jesus. Let me tell you who Jesus is. I'd heard about Jesus, knew he died on the cross, knew he raised from the dead, had all those historical facts, knew and understand all of that. But the one thing that I didn't know and I never understood was that I needed to turn from sin and turn to God and trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins. Believe upon Him. When have you received Him as your Lord and Savior? And you know what? I never had. I went to church for years. I did all the external ritual things that you do. And I walked away empty inside. There was something missing. There was a hunger. There was a thirst for spiritual things that going to church never satisfied. And after a while, I said, forget it. I'm not going to church anymore. I'll just sit and I'll watch the football games on and you can do whatever you want to do, but it's a waste of time. And there's a hunger there. There's a thirst there that's never been satisfied. And it was only until I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ presented to me and challenged, have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? And the answer was, no, I hadn't. Would you like to? And the answer was, no, not right now. And why was that? Because the light that I was given, I wasn't willing to act upon it because my deeds were evil and I loved the darkness rather than the light. Because it shined on my light and my life and the things that I was doing that was wrong before God and I didn't want to hear any more about the light because it was like a spotlight and a floodlight that showed every evil thought that I ever had, every miserable, rotten deed that I ever did. And I still liked some of that. And God said, you got to turn from that. And you've got to turn to God. And you've got to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You've got to believe he died on the cross for you. You've got to believe that he raised from the dead. You've got to believe that if you turn to him, that he will come into you and save you from your sin. And you need to receive him and open your heart to him. About a year of fighting with God, I finally surrendered. And I'm here to tell you this, that light, when light is given, and you live up to the light that you have, then he will give you more light. That is why, and that's the only explanation why, that missionaries could go into the world. And we've talked to and we know of stories of missionaries who have reported taking the gospel to primitive peoples who had never heard the name of Christ and finding the soil of their hearts prepared through creation and their conscience. In fact, one tribe told missionaries who came with the good news of Christ, we have been worshiping him We just didn't know his name until now. Isn't that what Paul said and went into Athens? Well, you're religious people. You're worshiping God, but you have this one, this thing over here, this monument to the unknown God. 
There's, there's something missing in your belief system. And it's Him who I'm here to tell you about. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead. That's who I'm here to proclaim. That's the only way you can be saved. Have you trusted in Him and responded to Him? The, 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 the reckoning factor is this. If you have not, you will be judged by God for the light that He has given you. And He is right to judge you accordingly. If you are seeking Him, I am convinced of this. There is no person who has ever sought God that has been turned away by Him. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever seeks after Him will not be disappointed. There isn't a person in the world throughout human history that when they sought God, that God turned a deaf ear to them. He sought them out. He seeks and saves that which is lost. The reason that you're here, the reason that we give out CDs and tapes to people is because we are giving them to people so that they can be exposed to the light and they will have a choice of what they do with the light that has been given to them. God will not be unjust to judge anyone who has any knowledge of creation or conscience or anything like that and says, you know what, I gave you light and you didn't act upon the light. And the reason wasn't intellectual, the reason was moral, because you didn't want to know. How about you? Did you want to know? I'll guarantee you this. This building is filled with people who wanted to know, and God did not disappoint And he brought people into our life who shared with us the wonderful news of Jesus Christ and him crucified so that you and I could turn from sin and turn to Christ and be born again by the will of God. Praise God. Praise God. If you want to, you know, you want to spend time uh, praising God, praise God for that, that he sought us out. And that little bit of interest that we had, he honored that. And he brought people to share the gospel. It is a wonderful calling to be ambassadors for our king to be able to share the good news of the gospel with those who god brings into our life so that they can live to the light god has given them and he gives them more now for those who reject the light light goes out and there's no other explanation for that that's why in second thessalonians we're told about a deluding spirit you know what if you hear the gospel and you continue to reject the peace offering that god has to give you there's just a point in time where you know what the light will go out and you'll not be able to respond and we need to take that very seriously because god has extended this period of time in human history his love to people you know our responsibility is to share the message I got a wonderful report from our tape and CD ministry. In this past year, we've given out over 18,000 tapes and CDs. We've given them away. We as a board determined long ago that we want to make this tool available to anyone as ambassadors who would like to take God's message and get it in the hands of somebody else that may not come to church, that may not want to sit and listen to you talk one-on-one. Maybe they're not comfortable, but we can hand them a tool that says, listen to this, and God will use that to expose and extend the light that he has already given them. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful tool that we have. And I hope, that, I hope this year we double the amount that we give away because what it means is that we've caught on to the sense of urgency to give it to a coworker, to give it to a schoolmate or a teammate, to give it to a neighbor or a family member, to give it, you know, it's like, man, you know what? I, you know, so-and-so needs to hear that. Then take it and give it to them and pray that God would open their hearts and prepare that soil to receive this, the, the sown word of God so that they will respond to it in a manner that is hospitable and receptive to the peace offering that God has come to give. 
Now, in closing, there's a rejoicing that we should all experience as ambassadors. And he says, you know what? And the 70 returned with joy. You know, if, you've, if you're out there on the front lines and you're in the game and you're serving the Lord, then you know, like Alan talked about this morning, there is a difference between happiness and joy. And there is a joy that we can experience when we see God at work, listen, through us. Their joy was that God was working through them and he got all the praise and all the glory. That's why he says in the 70 return and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They knew who gave them the authority. They knew who gave them the power. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Every time you and I as ambassadors go out and deliver the message of reconciliation and there are those who respond and receive that, the, the invitation to trust in Christ, Jesus said it's like watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The enemy is just defeated a little bit more at a time. He was totally defeated on the cross, but he is just beaten up every time a person comes to faith and trust in Christ. And we're to have a joy in our service that God would use us, that we could be that messenger to proclaim that good news. Is there anything better in life than seeing a person turn from sin and turn to God and being born again? Is there anything better in life than seeing a person who had no interest in spiritual things all of a sudden be on fire for the Lord and have a hunger and thirst to dig into the Bible? There's nothing better than that. I mean, that's the greatest thing in the world. There's nothing better than that. There is nothing you can ever achieve in life that will ever, ever equal the joy that you get in seeing God use you to proclaim the message and watch him cause another to be born again. It's the best. And then with all that, and on top of it, all things pass away. You see the mess of their life, and you see them walk past it. You see drunkenness, drug addiction, abortions. Um, you see liars and cheats and thieves. You see people that can't get along in their marriage, and they're filled with anger and hate, and they don't know how to treat their children, and there's abuse. And you see all of that left behind in a wake of ruin as God raises up this new person in Christ. And they look back on their life and they go, I can't even believe that was me. I look back on our life and say, I can't even believe that that was how I thought. That's how I lived. That's how I acted. Praise God that I was born again by the will of God, not by my own efforts. And here I am standing today in you as trophies of what God can do in the heart of one who truly seeks him. But if, if that's great joy, you know what? He says, don't, don't be so excited about that. He goes, you know what, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. You really want to have joy, have joy about this, that our names are recorded in heaven. They have been written. Literally, it means they have been written, and so they stand. It is a Greek word that's translated written, means to inscribe formally or solemnly. Listen to this. It was used for the signing of a will, a marriage document, a peace treaty, and also for the enrolling of citizens. And you can't miss this. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We now have peace with God. Here's this peace treaty. Have you trusted in Christ? I have. God puts our name. He signs his name. It's a done deal for all of eternity. He enrolls us as citizens in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence he will come and where we will return. And our names are written through all of eternity. 
I always feel bad for people who wonder if they can ever lose their salvation. It's such a deception from the pit of hell. Because no, we didn't do anything to deserve it. And number two, we can't do anything to lose it. And the reason for it is it's all based on the character of God. He signed the peace treaty. We're at peace with him through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are enrolled as citizens in heaven. And that'll never change. It is written in God's book of life. What a wonderful thing it is. Praise him. And finally, praise him for his sovereignty. And that is is that he would reveal himself to us. And that's what Jesus goes on to explain. And at that very time, Jesus himself rejoiced in the spirit. And I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did not hide these things. You hid them from the wise and intelligent, but you revealed them to babies. The Bible says, you know what? If you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, he'll, he'll uphold you and exalt you at the proper time. It's not hidden to those who seek him. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to have a PhD in theology. You know what? For as many as call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. Turn from sin, turn to God, trust in Christ, and you shall be saved. You can come to him as even a child and say, you know what? God, forgive me for my sin. You know, I yelled at my little sister. I, you know, I threw milk at her. Whatever it was, forgive me for I am a sinner. And I trust that Jesus died for that sin as for every other sin that could ever be committed, past, present, and future. And the Bible says that all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things that you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Isn't that a great place to be? That you and I have seen things that only the prophets and kings could ever dream of. We know the complete revealed will of God. We have lived to see the cross in hindsight as we read through his word. We live to see the effects of the resurrection of Christ through changed lives throughout human history. We read the book of Revelation and we know what to expect in the future. We have seen things that men in the past only wish they could have seen. What a wonderful thing it is to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And so we are here today. You and I, have tr- who have trusted in Christ, are his ambassadors. We need to go into the world willingly, not reluctantly. We're to pray that God would raise up more laborers because the harvest is great. We're to proclaim his message that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're to build up those who come to faith in the Lord. We're to rejoice in our service and our salvation. And above all, we're to rejoice in a God who is in control of and over all things. I don't know about you, but I love being his ambassador. What a privilege it is. I hope that you find it to be the case. And then I hope you sense the urgency and the focus to go into this world and tell people about Jesus. May we always lift them up before men. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. And that you first loved us, therefore we can love you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost, which is the theme of the gospel of Luke. Lord, we thank you for the light that you've given us in our conscience and even creation. That those who respond to even that little light that we have, you say that light, light responded to will create more light. We thank you that as we responded to that light, that you sent ambassadors to us to proclaim the message, uh, the ministry of reconciliation. 
We thank you that we could respond by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, that we turn from sin and turn to him and trusted in his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. We thank you that we've been born again by your will and not by our own human efforts. We thank you that we have been built up in the faith and that we're always ready to give an answer or defense for the hope that is within us. God, I pray that our mission will be simple, that our, that our spirit will be willing, that our fortitude would be steadfast and immovable, and that you will use us in a mighty way to reach this world with your word for your purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.